Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast. This is a special spotlight episode. We're talking on getting started with Home Assistant and I'm joined today by my usual co-host, Hey Rohan. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. And joining us today, we have Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, Phil. This episode is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Nebukasa. Easily and securely access your local Home Assistant instance remotely for a small monthly fee that also supports the Home Assistant project. Configuration is via the user interface, so no fiddling with router settings, SSL certificates, or any YAML. All right, so Brian, where in the world are you from? Uh, so Floyd, Virginia, in the, on the east coast of the United States. Awesome. Nice. And so you're just getting started with Home Assistant? Yeah, I am. Definitely um, been a uh, technical person, technical-minded person. You know, I've, I've uh, dabbled with Arduinos and Raspberry Pis for a long time. Okay. Recently actually installed Home Assistant on a Pi um, just to, to play around with it. But mm-hmm. really my, um, my project that I've been working on is I, I'm not actually – I haven't built the home that I'm going to be automating yet. So – I have a lot okay. of questions about, you know, actually designing that system. Right. Okay. Awesome. And, and just, just again, that's a great idea. So I did that before I moved into this, but I didn't, I didn't, uh, this is, uh, pre-owned or used. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I did the exact same thing, right? Lay it, lay it all out before you do it. Um, at, at least even if, you know, there's certain things that you won't do, like, Hey, I, I, I'm not going to wire in all my switches and that kind of thing, but it's definitely a good idea to plan it out ahead of time so um yeah kudos for you to for being able to do that that saved me a lot of grief afterwards so i'm building a tiny house on wheels and uh, oh yeah it's actually a a 32 foot it's built on a 32 foot gooseneck trailer and um i have the uh basically the interior uh still needs to be finished but the exterior it's it's essentially dried in right now uh, and I've got a lot of wiring pulled already, so I'm kind of midway through, and but still have a lot of design decisions to make about um, the, the home automation piece. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So that that's interesting. So obviously your house can then, you know, I'm guessing if it's on wheels, it's going to be moving around a lot. Yeah. So I'm I'm planning to have it semi mobile. So I'm I'm thinking that uh, I'll be taking it to some of these um, tiny house festivals and things occasionally, uh, mm-hmm. but then yeah. have have kind of a home base where it's normally staying. And I don't know if that is actually going to be um, on the grid or not. Interesting. Yeah. That also leads into some of these um, questions when we get into like solar and uh, intermittent internet and relying on, yeah, lots of, lots of challenges there that probably, you know, folks that are automating, um, you know, a foundation, you know, home built on a foundation wouldn't necessarily have to consider. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So uh, it, it, it's cool because we actually had uh, Adam from uh, SV Scenario uh, who kind of, well, he lives on his boat and, and automated his boat. So hopefully, hopefully we can answer some stuff for you today. Yeah. So uh, I'll start with, um, you know, a, just a general question about um, really about designing a system for maximum flexibility. You know, right now, like I said, I'm, I'm pulling wire and um, to give you a, just a general idea of how how things are going to be laid out, so I'm planning to have um, two large uh, NEMA 4X uh, electrical enclosures yeah. um, right right next to an outdoor um, load center uh, okay. on the exterior of the of the tiny house, and 
I they're they're about 20. I think they're like 24 by 20 uh, and eight eight inches deep. I'm, I'm dealing in inches here. I don't know um, metric, but yeah. so they're they're quite spacious in terms of you know putting in relays, uh, terminal blocks. I'm planning on you know running a bunch of DIN rail and then having everything pulled into like terminal blocks and really keep it nice and organized. And I I know a lot of the features that I want to have in this house, but I don't. I don't know if some of them are even possible, and I definitely don't yet know how to implement them with a home assistant. But I've been listening to your podcast for you know quite some time and following along, and I'm seeing I, my mind is continually blown by what people are doing with it. So I'm uh, you know I'm, I'm taking it that you know as I as I learn, I'll be able to integrate more and more features you know into this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's really like right now I'm just trying to give myself the ability to. Um, like open up as many opportunities and possibilities as I can in the future. And a lot of that is dealing with the hardware, you know, it's dealing with wiring. Yeah. So I think off the bat, um, especially if you're, you know, designing it from scratch, I think uh, neutrals to as many switches as you can, I think uh, are generally recommended, especially if you want to use dimmers and stuff. So make sure when they're getting, you know, wired up from your electrician that they're putting neutrals into those switches. I think, in North America, that's not generally uh, how it's done. So you might have to specify that. And where you, you know, I, in, for future proofing, I think if you can afford it, uh, a lot of Cat6 cable, so Ethernet cable around the home, just because, you know, you may not necessarily want, you know, a, an Ethernet port or in, in the home, but you may be able to reuse that cord for, you know, powering you know other sensors you know maybe powering you know motion sensors or cameras or anything in the future that you know technology or there might be some technology in the future that comes out in 10 20 years that may be able to utilize that cable yeah yeah and 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 to add to that a little bit when you're so phil phil talked about neutrals and things like that but one of the things you also want to make sure something that i learned personally is uh you want to make sure you have enough depth in your uh, wall boxes that it's it's deep enough that it can. Because typically, when you talk about smart devices, uh, they're they're typically a little bit fatter uh, on the inside. Like so, basically, let's let's take a uh, like a wall switch, and uh, I, I, like when you put it in into the wall box and you and you mount it, it the, that'll actually consume a little more space in the wall box because of all the extra electronics in there, right? as opposed to a normal, normal switch. So you want to see if you can get it a little bit deeper and, uh, and, and yeah, use that. And, and that's for that reason is actually one of the main reasons why I moved towards Lutron is because theirs is a little bit thinner, but you'll also, uh, for, for, for whatever reason, unlike a lot of, uh, standard non-smart, uh, switches, um, you know, power outlets, whatever. Most uh, most people, not everybody, there are some that you get that aren't like this, but uh, most vendors will actually have the cable hanging off of the actual switch as well. So you want to make sure you have enough space for your uh, for your cabling without cramming everything in there, right? So that's uh, that's something else to remember as you're as you're doing the wiring and as you're as you're building walls and such within the within the house as well. So you want to make sure you give enough room for that. Yeah. So this this brings up a. A question that I've had for a while, and it's a, uh, you know, basically, should I, as I'm, as I'm planning the system out, do I rely on devices that I'm uh, interacting with that are smart, and then allow them to communicate with Home Assistant, 
like uh, you know, a dimmer switch that's actually communicating over Wi-Fi versus um, using all like more passive devices and then uh, wiring all that into, you know, like one location and then having um, home assistant kind of interface with all that, you know, like uh, really reducing the number of um, Wi-Fi devices has been something that I've, for a number of reasons, I, I uh, wanted to do everything hardwired. Yeah. So, I mean, generally, it seems like a lot of people are using um, like Lutron devices. And um, I think I've seen several other brands, but yep. uh, it seems like some of that is just due to the practicalities of, of installing a system in an existing home. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you, d- you don't have the ability to run Cat6 to every switch box, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- that's kind of what I've been doing. I've been running Cat6 everywhere. I've got um, shielded uh, uh, Cat6A run that stuff is really thick too. I uh, I yep. bought a thousand yeah. feet of shielded Cat Six A, and I was like, "Holy crap, this stuff is so thick!" Uh, it's very hard to bend. It's very hard to move around. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. In 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 your case, so um, one of the right moves you made, as as annoying as it is to work with, especially if you're running it near uh, wiring and things like that, is uh, you use shielded Cat Six uh, or Six A which is definitely the right move. So what I, when you're wiring, I mean, so it's wireless, you have to worry about interference, things like that, like other 2.4 gig uh, devices or what have you. You actually have the same thing to worry, worry about when you're wiring as well, when it's close to power outlets and things like that, when it's close to electricity, right? Or things like transformers, things that generate a lot of the, uh, electromagnetic interfer- interference. So shielded uh, STP, shielded twister pair is definitely the way to go. And uh, especially from from what it sounds like, you're going to be running it pretty much alongside your power cables. Um, will something happen? Probably not. But you want to make sure you reduce uh, reduce any of that interference uh, wherever you can. Right now, in terms of wired, because I know you mentioned wired, uh, like sorry, uh, wired smart switches, as in the smart functionality comes in through wires and stuff. I haven't seen a ton of that stuff. Um, I actually don't know of any. I'm sure it exists. Um, but and another reason why you see, for the most part, you see a lot of, uh, smart switches that are, uh, relying on wireless technologies is to your point, it is, there is a lot more brownfield where, where, you know, I've got a existing wall with existing wires and all this stuff, and it's not really practical for me to run cable. Right. So for that reason, uh, you do see a lot of that. So if you're going for that and, and this is, this is a double-edged sword, right? Especially for you. Something proprietary like Lutron might be a little better, but then there's there's some reliance on um, cloud. There's some reliance on internet, uh, especially with a lot of these different uh, brands that you'll get that are proprietary. Now, Lutron, I believe specifically, uh, just because I use it, I believe they do have some kind of local bypass where we can talk uh, directly to the to the hub. But again, to your point, it's still it's still two point four. I mean, Phil, I don't know if you've seen a whole lot of uh, wired, uh, like in wall switches, dimmers. Yeah. So a lot of the like professional grade home automation systems will use wired um, yeah. switches and communications and all that. And it's usually, you know, that's obviously where the um, high prices come into it. And generally, what they do is 
you will have uh, a lot of wires going to where all your switches are, and they go back to like a central place, you know, usually in your garage or something like that, where their controls are basically like a, a server rack where all those little um, switches and all that get hardwired into that rack. And the brains of the house knows, okay, you know, when a button gets pressed on this switch, I need to do this action. But obviously those systems, you know, they're proprietary, they very expensive sort of thing. So I don't know if there is sort of like a, a level down. So if you think that's like top tier home automation, you know, like the millionaires would have, I don't know if there's a level down or even a few levels down into the the basics where it would be accessible for someone that wants to do it themselves to to go in and, and, and run a, a similar system. I I think the, the old rule is that if you can wire it in, it's better than going wireless because, uh, yeah. you know, interference, you don't, and especially if the house is moving, just because, you know, if you've got uh, Z-Wave or Zigbee switches everywhere in the current location, if you move to another location on the house, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, your next neighbor might have a, a Wi-Fi network that interferes with all your switches. And that would be really annoying if you get to the next location and you can't turn on the bathroom switch because that's where you're neighbor's router is right next door so yeah i think it's i don't know what the 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 solution is i'm sure there's got to be a a product that could manage that but yeah yeah with that said in 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 2019 i don't i don't think we really have to worry about wi-fi interference and stuff as much do you have to worry about it sure but i mean i've i've been in office buildings and residential buildings where you know you have you're in a condo and you've got 47 different ssids that you're that you're seeing on uh when you when you go down and try and pick a uh pick a wireless network right and and it works still right um so it's it's Again, with that said, take that with a grain of salt, right? I mean, especially if you're in a tiny house, you probably aren't in an environment where there's, again, you're not stacking these tiny houses and, and, and things like that, right? It's, um, so, you know, there's more, more area that the, that the Wi-Fi is covered over. Uh, and, and from a wireless technology perspective as, uh, as well, another pro tip is don't, uh, have the AP screaming. So one of the things that I see and hear a lot is, um, people go, I want, the highest power, highest whatever, right? I want the loudest access point. Well, it's actually not a good thing. You actually want to make sure it's just enough for, for wherever it is you are and where, you know. Uh, so so what happens is a lot of people, if they put custom firmware on their uh, wireless routers or on their access points, whatever, um, they'll go, great, you know what? I'm going to bump up the transmit power all the way. And that's not always a good thing because you start introducing a lot of noise into it. There's not a lot of interference, that kind of thing. So you want to watch out for that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. So the, um, so speaking of switches, so I've, I've got a, um, my, my first project that was related to uh, home automation for this tiny house was, was actually developing a, um, a lighting solution. And I, um, I saw the, uh, PCA 9685, um, a PWM controller and yeah. really, I don't know how familiar you guys are with that, but basically it has, um, uh, 16, uh, 14 or I think it's 16 channels um, of, of PWM output. And um, I wanted, I, I knew that I probably, if I had all the lighting that was independently controllable, like everywhere that I wanted it uh, in the house, I would probably end up with about 12, um, 12 lights. And I'm 
using LED strips. So they're going to be overhead. And then I've got some lofts that are going to be built in. Well, they'll actually be movable lofts, but I'll have lighting underneath yeah. them and then, you know, bathroom lighting and then exterior lighting. So I was planning on having um, the P the PCA 9685 controlling um, all of that lighting from the same enclosure uh, or one of those enclosures in the front. So, you know, it's going to be near whatever I'm running Home Assistant on, and then I'll be able to communicate. Um, I, I take it that I'll be communicating over uh, with MQTT and then running, uh, you know, I'm not, not exactly sure like what the best way to uh, control um, that PC9685 is, but I, I designed a, a, a PCB to, um, I, I looked at what was out there and I didn't really see anything that was high current. Um, and that broke yeah. out all of the, um, um, all of the available outputs. So I, I designed a, a PCB to, to really break out all those and be able to um, uh, drive uh, MOSFETs really hard. So I've got MOSFET drivers um, uh, uh, driving 16 MOSFETs all on a, a pretty small board. And I've tested it out and it's and it's really working great. Um, but that's going to be my control. So I was imagining that I would have, um, if I, like a, one level would be to be interfacing with switches, like physical switches on the on the wall. This is a tiny house, so it's not like I'm going to be having to like walk across a large room in order to use a switch, right? It's always mm, going to be yeah. at, at arm's length. So that would be maybe like phase one is to have something um, rudimentary where I've got a physical switch. You know, um, if it needs to be, it could be like a push button, uh, you know, low voltage push button. And the Arduino is reading that input and then, you know, turning on uh, the lights to a predefined um, level. And then... You know, as I go, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to get away from using physical switches altogether and um, use voice. But, well, let, let me let you, re, you know, respond to that. Uh, and then I, I do want to talk a little bit more about um, electromagnetic interference and, and RFI and everything. But that's kind of a, a separate thing. So what do you guys think about, um, how, like, how many how many Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and Intel NUCs and stuff do I really need to be able to, to, to run this? So one of the things you want to consider is, so it depends on really how many things you're driving, right? So from an Arduino, so you got to be looking from a, what it can actually do standpoint. Um, typically Arduinos from, from what I've seen and, and in my, like granted limited experience with Arduinos, for the most part, the, you know, the, the cheap and cheerful ones aren't very, uh, they're not super powerful. So they're, they're typically good for doing kind of one or two things at once. Right. So those things you might want to scale out a little bit. Um, things like Raspberry Pis are a little more powerful. Um, but again, it depends on what you're, what you're doing with them. Are you driving those MOSFETs with them? Are you do like, like, right. And then based on that, I think honestly, the only way you really know is by trying it. Right. And, and depends on what kind of, uh, what, not, not as much what programming language you're running with or anything like that. More, more around how many of these devices are you driving? Um, in terms of how do you get those guys integrated in, I mean, there, there's a few different ways. I mean, you talked about MQTT, which is a, which is a great way of, of driving a lot of this stuff. But outside of that, yeah, yeah, I, I like from a scaling perspective, I mean, I mean, Phil, maybe, maybe you know a little more about that, but I mean, for, for me, it's one of those things where you just, you got to try it out and, and obviously it depends on the, on the outputs on the specific Arduino device or Raspberry Pi yeah. and things like that, right? With GPIOs and things like that. So I think 
in terms of you know what home assistant can handle and what hardware to to run on it i think there is a correlation with the number of devices that or on really in, in home assistant talk how many entities home assistant has to uh track so you know if you've got you know a whole bunch of switches and then you're getting motion sensors and everything like that if you've got you know hundreds of those in your home uh then you're going to want something that home assistant can process because there's going to be a lot of communication being thrown at home assistant so it's going to have to process all those incoming messages and then take action and and all that i would say generally what i usually do is once i start seeing home assistant slow down i would then you know upgrade and and move on to something bigger i think you know the raspberry pi is great for starting out but as soon as you start adding you know a whole bunch of different components you know you've got media servers and you've got device trackers you know you can tracking who's home who's not which lights are on i think the raspberry pi will very quickly struggle <laughs> If I was in your shoes, I'd probably be leaning towards a Nook or or even maybe like a, a mini PC that you can potentially upgrade as you need. So maybe, you know, if you need to switch out a processor in the future or put more RAM in it or something, maybe, you know, start looking at that. Um, but I, I do. And also another thing, you know, you were talking about MQTT and, you know, all these devices that are going to be using Wi-Fi. I think you also need to take a, a look at the network infrastructure you're going to be using. I know that was uh, one of the pain points I had um, very early in my um, smart home journey was once I got, you know, several devices connected to the Wi-Fi, the uh, standard, you know, run-of-the-mill router that I had from my ISP just choked and, you know, couldn't handle all the traffic itself and my entire network would go down. So I think, you know, looking, you know, when you've got MQTTs sending a lot of messages over, sure, they're small packets, but it can be a lot of, uh, you know, single requests going back and forward. So I'd definitely look at, you know, making sure you've got the right uh, inf- uh, infrastructure in place as well. Yeah. And, and, and talking to one of your earlier points, Phil, also is when you're uh, in terms of kind of platform selection for this, um, especially if you're going to be running multiple services on the same box, so Home Assistant, MQTT server, you know, whatever other services you might be running on that box as well, uh, you might you might want to do something bigger than a Raspberry Pi like a Nook just because, again, Raspberry Pi, sometimes when you start adding a bunch of these services, starts getting bogged down. For the Raspberry Pi, with that said, in small environments work fine, um, at, at least from, you know, how I've seen it used and, and I have quite a few friends that are using that as well. But yeah, something like a Nook might kind of for down the road so that you don't have to take it, pick it up, move it, that kind of thing. A Nook might make sense to start out with because then you're starting out with something a little bit bigger and you don't really need to grow into it, right? Um, you're giving yourself a little bit of room to grow there. So that might be that might be something to consider. Yeah, so this um, this lighting controller, um, I believe the... It's been a little while since I since I built it. It's been sitting on the desk. I, I believe it's an I, I2C device. So I would have... Uh, I'm, I'm thinking I would have an Arduino or a Pi um, actually controlling the... PCA 9685, and then use MQTT to um, you know basically tell that Pi or, or um, Arduino what to do. And I have mm-hmm. been, I've definitely been planning on um, you know putting in something like a NUC or um, some you know low power mini PC 
uh, for sure, because I've uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about um, slowdowns on um, on the Pi. That's what I'm running it on right now, but I, I really don't have any automations or anything set up yet. Um, it's just been just to play around with it a little bit. Um, so the to, to to go into like what I'm. I think one of the challenges here is that a lot of, you know, maybe a typical path into home assistant um, might be somebody that's in an existing home and they see features that they want to add, automation features they want to add to their home, um, like, you know, being able to tell, you know, your device of choice, you know, turn on the lights or whatever, whatever um, simple automation to make life a little bit easier. And then you've got a switch already in place that you can, you know, you can change out with something and you've already got, um, you're already like living life and you have a functional home and you're able to, uh, you know, kind of step-by-step build out automations in that. In my situation, um, I, I would rather bypass a lot of the, like, I don't want to have to go through phase one and like install physical switches everywhere and then, um, pick up and, uh, you know, and then change things out and automate um, different features and functions. Uh, I'd rather just jump right to using Home Assistant. But of course, the issue with that is that like when I install the lights, how am I going to turn them on? I'm going to have to learn how to um, use MQTT. I'm going to have to learn how to, you know, get this, um, uh, the, the, PWM controller up and running and talking with the Arduino and and then you know every step of the way there's other things like um, uh, to to give you an idea of like what I want to do in the house I I definitely want to have all the lighting controlled uh, through Home Assistant I've also got um, like water sensing like leak leak sensing and then um, automatic uh, water shutoff um, yep. and a lot of temperature sensing as well. I mean, given that this is off grid and it may be, we may deal with like freezing uh, issues. Um, some some way to um, kind of mitigate freeze damage and like you know potential out of control water leaks. So uh, leak sensing, um, water shutoff valves. Um, also, I'm planning on doing a solar system, and um, I, I I would like to. I, I see a lot of benefits in having Home Assistant running with solar because there's just such great opportunities to do like load shedding and and things. I mean, just, you know, pop in a bunch of relays and you can, you know, shed loads as you need based on power levels, uh, you know, sun mm-hmm. brightness, things like that. And, you know, battery health mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, also maybe a, a schedule. I mean, am I going to yeah. be, you know, is this a day where I'm going to be running a, a washing machine and, you know, need to have, uh, there, there's just all kinds of stuff I could do with that. Um, also I've pulled, I've pulled cat six to, um, uh, a few different locations for, for cameras. Um, and I, I really love the, uh, what I've seen some people doing with, um, uh, like facial recognition and motion detection and presence detection with cameras. And, um, don't, I don't know exactly where I want to go with that, but I, I definitely want to be able to, to play around with that. So I, I would be bringing in probably two or three cameras into home assistant as well. Uh, fairly soon. I've, I've already got a couple cameras. And then, you know, motion sensing, window and door close open sensing. Yeah. Um, so I've got, you know, Cat 5 or Cat 6 pulled to each each of those. Door, you know, yep. door locking. I'm actually, I've got a, a door that I'm designing. It's, I've, I have a way of like overcomplicating things. And I decided instead of just buying a door, 
and uh, just popping it in the rough opening, I would design this this door. And uh, so I fabricated it out of steel and um, it's going to be beautiful, but it's got a complicated locking mechanism. It, it locks kind of like a bank vault with pins that go into the, the frame. And um, I, I've got, okay. yeah, it, it's going to be awesome, man. It's, I've got this, um, this old ship's wheel nice. that's um, going to be the way that you, um, uh, you know, open and close it. it. It's, it's pretty exciting, but yeah. I have the ability to even, even um, use home assistant to um, essentially use like a, a solenoid, like with a plunger where I could lock and unlock essentially like have a, a keyed lock, but then be able to bypass and, and temporarily unlock the door using um, like a 24 volt solenoid to allow uh, entry. So yeah, that's, that's getting into, um, you know, some security issues too. And then, yeah. so I, I really would like to uh, really use home assistant to make this, make this tiny house. Um, I don't know, it, quite smart. I mean, right. And right away too. So that's, um, you know, that's one of my, been one of my challenges. Um, what do you guys think about that? Like, the the idea of jumping straight in versus like step by step like changing out from from dumb systems into you know into smart smart systems what's so special about hero Bread's soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas these ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health shop now at hero.co well if you have the opportunity to start out with something smart then start out with something smart there's no point in uh with you know legacy non-smart whatever dumb systems if you want to call it that and migrating to smart but with that said that's also a large undertaking right so to, to your point i mean kind of all the things you're talking about all the things you're planning out that's a lot of work um and and especially as you're building it yeah you can do one thing at a time but then when you start having to say okay i got to do this and do this and do this and do this now that starts becoming a little overwhelming sometimes, right? So it depends. If you have the time, then then great. Then start out smart and just go full steam ahead that way. But but something interesting I wanted to touch on is, is you, you talked about kind of your door design with the lock and so on and so forth, right? One of the things you might want to be aware of is just, again, before you build all this stuff out, like physically or before, before you put it into, well, in IT terms, before you put it into production, what you want to look at is make sure you go through all your failure scenarios, right? Great. I have no power. What happens? I have no internet. What happens? I have no, um, you know, or maybe, maybe home assistance died somehow, somewhere, someone for whatever reason, right? What happens then? Do you have a manual bypass, especially for something like, like your door lock where, I mean, assumably you have one, maybe two doors and no other way to get in or out of that house. You know, is it is it default open, default close? How does that affect things? Um, and or on top of that as well, from a security perspective now, okay, if you have a default open or a default close, then A, can you get into the place? Or B, can anybody get into the place if, if, uh, if it's as simple as going, like you mentioned, all your electrical stuff's outside. So if I go just flick off a couple of breakers, what happens now? Right, so make sure you test those kind of scenarios before before you uh, before you actually put it in. Because, and you know, do you have a manual override where you can physically go in and like it sounded like you're basically building a custom lock, right? Kind of like like you said, like the bank vault style, whatever. So great, you have the ship's wheel on the inside. Now, what happens on the outside, right? And 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 that kind of a thing. So um, 
just just make sure you run through all of those different scenarios. And and maybe I misunderstood some of what you're doing, but but it sounded like there may be potential for you locking yourself out of your place. Yeah. So the the door, um, since this is audio, um, <laughs> to kind of describe the door, it's it's um, yeah, it's like a standard size uh, door with a I think it's a 32 inch door with a side light, 14 inch side light. And there are pins that, that engage the frame at the top and the bottom. And I've got a couple, um, uh, I've got a couple gears and gear racks, um, inside a a gear box to basically change the rotation of the exterior mounted ship's wheel to, to actually engage those pins up and, and down the direction that they need to go. And a, um, and I've got a lock, a a traditional keyed, like quick set, or, uh, I don't know the brand, but Uh, a physical lock that will, uh, it's not actually engaging a, um, it's not actually engaging a, a, a deadbolt into the frame. Um, it's actually moving. It's actually disengaging yeah. a, a, basically a stop that is blocking one of the gear racks. So, um, that key will always be able to, uh, from the exterior, um, allow those, uh, bolts, those, those pins, to be um, disengaged from the frame and allow the door to be open. And then from the inside, I've got a, just a standard like deadbolt style thumb turn. So, you know, that's, cool. that's actually, I'm not going to be completely reliant on home assistant to open the door for me. I'll have an option to, to get in and out without it. I just, I wanted to have, um, yeah. So, so that's actually one where I can kind of kick yeah. that can down the road a little bit. Um, uh, because with that, you know, I, uh, basically, I'll install the the solenoid. Have the solenoid able to temporarily disengage that 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 stopper that the lock is engaging. Um, so it's as if you know somebody's in there turning um, turning the key uh, and then locking it back when that plunger is is pulling that that stopper away from the gear rack. You know, so I'll be able to have that hooked up, wired up, and then um, right. you know wires uh, terminated in one of those uh, panels at a terminal block and then, you know, figure out over time how to, how to get, um, how to get that system like integrated into uh, home assistant. What do you guys think about, like I mentioned a lot of different sensing, like a lot of inputs into home assistant with um, you know, windows and motion and like temperature and all this. What are, what are some things like that I need to, to consider um, as yeah. I'm, you know, is this is this actually going to be a heavy load on something like an Intel NUC or or a Pi if I, if it's all hardwired or is typically is it is it the Wi-Fi like uh you know all, all the 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 Wi-Fi devices that people are normally relying on for you know sensing and things coming in that's uh you know kind of slowing things down you know what I mean is yeah. it going to be easier because it's hardwired on the on the system um I I, I don't think that that would affect it too much. I mean, from from a home assistant's perspective, it's still a sensor or not a sensor, right? It's still data coming through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think I think what uh, what will actually affect it more is how much of that telemetry are you pulling through and how often, right? Um, so, for example, if I'm if I'm pulling every one of my sensors every let's call it half a second versus pulling it every five seconds now there's that much more or less data relative to whatever side of that 
line you're looking at, that home assistant has to process and or graph out and or, you know, whatever, right, that it has to deal with. So if if you're planning on pulling more information, then then it does put more of a stress on home assistant, right? If you're put, uh, if you're planning on pulling less, then great. So and and really depends on what you want to do. So you talked about kind of saying, I mean, so slightly more advanced topics where you started saying, hey, you know what, I want to do facial recognition, I want to do that kind of thing. Typically, that sits outside of home assistant. But at the same time, if you're thinking of doing those kind of advanced things, you may also be thinking of doing some other uh, advanced, let's call it analytics, where you start saying, okay, I want more information. And the more I get, I can make better, more intelligent decisions based on what's actually happening in the house. Now, that takes a lot of data, right? So for something like that, that that might put a bit more of a stress on home assistant than, than not doing that, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm talking strictly from a data collection perspective, not from crunching those numbers to actually do something intelligent out of it. So that might be that might be something to consider, but at the same time, it, it also depends on how many sensors you have, right? If you if you've got relatively few amount of sensors, it shouldn't be too bad. If you've got a ton of sensors, like several hundred sensors, and you know you're pulling all of them constantly, it's probably probably you probably want something heftier. Yeah, so I, I know the Arduino Omega's got a ton of I/O. Um, and I'm a lot of this stuff is is pretty like the the door and window like open close sensors. I mean that's just a it's an on off, <laughs> you know it, it's an on off uh, condition. Uh, stuff like you know temperature sensors. Um, if I have those on like a uh, I could have those on a single I squared C line, you know, and just have a, a few temperature sensors like interior and exterior and. You know, amperage detection could also be run through the Arduino. Those things, I guess, are, are going to be fairly low load. And then I would just have, if I'm understanding uh, correctly, I would have the Arduino uh, basically yeah. uh, telling the um, telling home assistant what's going on through MQTT for all those inputs. And then the heavier uh, the, the the heavier stuff like um, uh, the cameras and uh, uh, presence detection, that's a, a big piece that's, uh, I'm not sure how to handle that. But those two things, you know, that's not going to be an Arduino thing. That's going to be a, you know, pipe that data directly into Home Assistant yeah. and, and deal with it somehow. Yeah, fair. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, those are, those are depending on how much you're pushing the Home Assistant. Uh, and, and really that, that's, that there's no kind of specific formula that's, you know, past this many things at this many seconds you're going to have to upgrade to a yeah. pi 4 like, like mm. you, you know what i mean right like and then there's also um what home assistant is going to do with that data so you know you may have your door opening and, and closing or you may have temperatures coming in what's home assistant doing is it processing automations based on that data or perhaps it's then pushing that data over to the recording component which will either use uh, SQL Lite or may use MySQL database if you want to keep it, you know, um, a bit faster and snappier. Or is it going to long-term storage for, you know, like into an influx DB where you can then, you know, use it into turn and put into nice graphs in Grafana. So, you know, it's not just data coming into Home Assistant for, you know, processing automations. It's then what Home Assistant has to do with that data to push out to the external system. So, 
if you've got temperatures updating every minute, then every minute Home Assistant's going to have to receive that data via MQTT and then push it out somewhere else and, and save it. Yeah. So, so to streamline that a little bit, maybe maybe there might be another let's call it a preprocessor somewhere sitting between uh, the physical sensor and home assistant, right? So stuff sends it to that. Maybe it's an Arduino, maybe it's a Raspberry Pi, something like that. That does a bit of crunching and then sends that off to home assistant. So that might make things a little more efficient. Like, so basically it's filtering out the things that you actually care about and maybe summarizing things and, and that kind of thing to, to actually pull triggers into home assistant. Mm. Brian, before you mentioned that you were considering um, just going straight into some of the, like, you know, don't step up, you know, just go straight into the full-on smart home. How are you planning, so, for things like, you know, maybe guests come over or people that aren't, you know, necessarily into the smart home, how do you see them interacting in your home? Because for me, I feel as though being able to replace every light switch in a home doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's something that I've, th- this home, I've really designed this tiny house around my, you know, my own needs. And, um, but I, I have been, you know, I, <laughs> obviously I'm going to, I'm going to have people over and they need to be able to turn on the lights, um, you know, if, if, uh, and, and leave the house and stuff like that. So I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, uh, I was imagining um, right at the door on the interior um, having a, a touchscreen with, um, you know, with, with the interface pulled up to be able to, um, uh, to do things. I, I don't know if that's, if, if a touchscreen is um, intuitive enough to control lights uh, for people. I mean, obviously somebody coming into the home, the first thing that they're interacting with, um, like the very first thing that they interact with will be, this ship's wheel that opens the door. So already you're kind of into a situation where it's, it's non-traditional and it's going to take a little bit of, a little bit of learning uh, to be able to, you know, to use the home. So I'm not, um, you know, I'm not at the level where I want to have physical switches everywhere because that's what people expect. But I do want people to be able to kind of intuitively understand, Oh, um, you know, this is how you turn the, the lights on. There's, there's yeah. this touchscreen interface, you know. Uh, but but I could I could use some guidance there, you know, in thinking about that. Yeah. So I think yeah. two um, school of thoughts come to me. One in programming is you know keep it simple, stupid, right? So you know if someone's walking into the house and they need an instruction manual on how to turn the lights off and on, not yeah. ideal. Also, and to Rohan, you made this point before is when you have such a, an integrated house and so many moving parts, when one of those moving parts fails, it can make your smart home very, (laughs) very stupid very quickly. So, you know, all it would take is, you know, for example, as Rohan said before, like uh, maybe like home assistance rebooting from an update and it doesn't come back and all of a sudden you have no control over any of your lights Um, or, you know, maybe your presence detection hasn't fired correctly and now your alarm's going off because it thinks there's an intruder in the home and you can't turn it off for whatever reason. So I think, and and that's where, you know, sort of coming from a, uh, where there's lots of manual overrides and lots of easy, you know, old school switches that don't necessarily rely on the smart technology because it's not fully reliant on the smart technology the smart technology you know sort of complements that and can control that that's where i would be 
leaning more towards. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to, to hammer on that a little bit more, um, I mean, just in my own home's example again, because because I have obviously smart switches, which then I mean the switch itself has the intelligence in it, right? So again, as I mentioned, I use Lutron at home. Now those uh, for somebody coming in from from you know that's not that doesn't live in my house, so it's not me or my girlfriend. They can still come in, turn on a light, turn off the light, that kind of thing, right? So we had this. I don't, I don't know if it's a bylaw or what it is. There's some there's some weird thing where, and and this is actually the second home that. Like the house I grew up in was similar, but a little bit different. And then here it's also basically my guest bathroom didn't have the light switch inside the bathroom, right? Um, so uh, light switch and, and fan switch. So it was outside. So j- just to give you an example of from, from a UX or user experience perspective, people walk into the bathroom and they're just like, uh, hey, man, how do I turn on the lights? How do I turn on the fan? Right. And and I, I literally had uh, one of one of my girlfriend's friends showered in the dark because she couldn't figure <laughs> out how to how to turn on the, the lights or fan. Right. And and so which which I, I actually love Lutron for this because you can use their little Pico switches and, and that kind of thing. But the, the point is, you have to consider how people are used to using it. And, and again, even as, as technologically uh, inclined as you may be, or I may be, that doesn't mean everybody is right. So what happens is now somebody comes into your house, a guest, uh, you know, whoever comes into your house, you know, you know, to Phil's earlier point, you don't, you don't want an instruction manual of here's how you turn on the lights, turn off the lights, right? Um, That, that kind of stuff should just be intuitive. Um, And uh, otherwise you find people, A, either not using it. Um, or B, just being like, man, I hate this, right? Um, and, and, and and again, this is me with my values, is uh, for my home, I don't want people to feel like they're, you, you know, them coming to my house is a burden on them because, uh, you know, something as simple as, hey, turning on the lights, Right. Um, it, 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 again, to me, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a welcoming thing. It's a, it's a, you know, if you want to, if you want to, um, have the, like, uh, like, again, my house, I use an Amazon Echo. So if you want to have the Echo turn on the lights, turn off the lights, or, or do a scene where it turns off all the lights or turns on all the lights, that's cool. Right. But, but sometimes people still need to be able to have that intuitive, like, Hey, let me turn on the lights and, you know, I just need something real quick. And, and to Phil's point, uh, as well, which is actually the second point I was going to bring up is, is failure, right? Again, you got to consider that what happens when home assistants dead, right? And, and maybe you're in the middle of something, you don't necessarily have the time to bring it up, fix it, re-add everything, do whatever that, whatever that entails, right? Um, so great. If that means if I have to run my house for two days without it, how are you going to do that? I'm wondering also if there could be some potential legal requirements as well when you're designing. Make maybe uh, you need to have physical light switches in a room. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people were talking about uh, hardwiring in smart bulbs like Philips Hue bulbs, so that people wouldn't accidentally flick them off at the switch. And, you know, a lot of people have actually said, well, hang on, let's not hardwire the lights in because what if you, for whatever reason, you need to turn them off and, you know, maybe that may be against building codes or whatever like that. So there may be also yeah. be some, you know, legal sides of things that you have to consider yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Check your bylaws. I, I realized now that I had, I'd actually um, considered 
a um, a physical switch like at the door where um, somebody you know would be able to throw the switch and then a predetermined scene would actually come on. And I thought about like you know this this issue of um, you know what if Home Assistant is updating you know am I going to be able to turn on lights? Bringing that in uh, essentially opening and closing um, uh, you know a, a twisted pair on some Cat Six um, to the Arduino to be able to bypass. Home assistant altogether for the lighting, yeah. Because the lighting, I mean, it's not. It's going to be 24 volt LED strips, and it's driven by this, um, you know, PWM controller. So mm-hmm. I'm going to have to be at least relying on the Arduino, you know, for for that control. But essentially, I could I could have a, you know, a, a standard wall switch, except it's just opening and closing a, a an input on the Arduino, and then the Arduino is saying, okay, now turn on turn on all channels to, you know, 75%. Um, and I don't, there's a lot of other stuff that, um, lighting is obviously <laughs> probably number one issue that would make it painful for somebody to, you know, come in if, if they can't turn on lights, obviously that's going to be a problem. I don't know of like what else, you know, what other things I need yeah. to consider, but the, yeah. the Arduino might be a, a good solution for that. Like having a predetermined scene, essentially. The only problem with that becomes, if that per- like someone comes home at 2 a.m. in the morning and flicks that switch and it turns on all the lights, but, you know, people are sleeping in a room and you maybe only want, you know, the lights in the kitchen to come on or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, especially if you've uh, if, if you've had one too many drinks or something like that. You're just <laughs> impulsively... I, 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 know, I, know, I know it sounds stupid, but these are things you have to consider, right? Like, you, you know, how to... Home Assistant, as cool as it is, actually has a lot of behavior theory, whatever you want to call it, behind it, right? Where where uh, you have to kind of almost anticipate how people are going to utilize it or how people are going to use yes, it. Now, yeah. if it's just you and you don't plan to have anybody there or whatever, fine, right? But but that that's a specific scenario, right? But chances are, you know, somebody might come over at some point or, or what have you, right? You might have some buddies yeah. over, whatever that is. So you you have to consider the implications of your automation on them, right? Again, it's a welcoming thing. You don't want your house to not be welcoming. Yeah, exactly. You know, the tiny house, it's a it's it's already it's already a pretty um intimate environment, you know, with <laughs> only 235 square feet. I mean, you're kind of right on top of each other, yeah. you know, so yeah. um when, when somebody walks in the door like if it is if yeah. I am asleep, you know, and I have a guest that's coming in and out, you know, I'm going to be like, uh, my, my head will be probably like six feet away from the door, you know? So it's, it's not like somebody could be completely on another <laughs> side, like, um, you know, where, where they could just be quiet and not. Yeah. Sure. So I, I think, um, I think that I can, I could probably live with some like basic, you know, stopgap kind of, um, systems like that, like a physical switch to turn everything on and then, you know, educate, educate people, um, you know, as needed. I think, um, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I don't know how much you guys have like thought of off grid living and like tiny house stuff, but yeah, there's even issues, um, that are, that are pretty, um, Mm -hmm. pretty interesting. I think for people when they first consider it like, um, composting toilets and, and other stuff where it takes, there's a learning curve involved, um, with a lot of people's tiny homes. And, um, you know, probably there are some needs for an instruction manual, um, here and there, (laughs) Yeah, I've I've got a friend uh, that that has moved into her second tiny home now. So she started with a tiny tiny home and then moved into a little slightly larger tiny home, and uh, and and 
yeah, I mean, what, you know, just talking to her, one of her things was exactly that, right? It's like, okay, you got to get, get used to A, being so close to everybody else. And, uh, and B is, uh, is, is exactly that. There's, there's other devices and stuff that you have to deal with. You mentioned the composting toilets, right? That's a great example. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's an interesting concept though, um, of, you know, tiny home plus off grid kind of living, right? So, yeah, I wanted to jump back to, um, what we talked about a little bit before about, um, uh, EMI and, um, one thing that I didn't, <laughs> that I didn't mention that, uh, at that time was, um, some of my, some of my plans, I'm an amateur radio operator. Okay. So, I wanted to reduce the number of that, that's one of the reasons I wanted to reduce the number of RF devices just to keep things as RF quiet as I could. Um, so I'm de- doing a lot of shielding yeah. along the way using, you know, shielded cable. You, you asked about, um, running, uh, like cat six along power. I I'm building. So this, this tiny house, it's actually, um, it's actually a kit. I started building one for myself and then decided to kind of create a design that was more, um, uh, easy to replicate. And um, eventually it became uh, a kit uh, product. Yeah. And so this is the prototype kit and it's made with SIP panels, um, structural insulated panels. So for those not familiar with that, it's it's like a, two pieces of OSB with a, um, a bit of uh, uh, expanded polystyrene foam in the middle. So it's like a like a sandwich almost. And okay. there's no uh, there's no inset lumber. Um, like blocking, you, you could basically take a, a drill and run it through the foam from one end to the other, yeah, and you have a chase for electrical. So I've got, you know, I've got chases at outlet height, um, switch height, and then at loft height. And I I ran the low voltage, um, kind of this uh, like bundle, very large bundle of shielded, this huge shielded Cat six. Um, I tried to go vertical with that, so if I have um, I, yeah, I didn't want low voltage running alongside um, high voltage, essentially. So I've actually got chases um, coming coming down from a yeah. separate chase for for that low voltage stuff. Hopefully that'll that'll help a bit, you know, with with that sort of interference. But if I have um, you know, if I have a hundred uh, watt radio that I that I key up on um, an amateur radio band, that you know, naturally, I mean, just at hundred watt levels, um, that can already cause a lot of electrical stuff to go haywire in a house um, because you've just got a lot of energy coupling with um, mm-hmm. with wires. I really, <laughs> I've been focused on like making sure everything's shielded well. I also, for amateur radio reception, um, I, I am concerned with a lot of these um, devices putting out a lot of um, RFI. I mean. A lot of the um, like smart lights uh, and LEDs that you actually um, you know yeah. screw into a, a standard um, light bulb base. A lot of those are are just terrible at at um, yep. just blasting out um, RFI. Um, so that's been something that's been a, mm. a little bit limiting, and that's one of the, the one of the design like restrictions that I placed on myself uh, to to avoid using um, Wi-Fi and. And that's that's another reason that I designed that that LED um, driver. I'll be able to to change the frequency, um, the the pulse width frequency. So if I do if I do have any kind of um you know harmonics yep. that are um, that are interfering with something, I'll be able to you know shift that that frequency around until I can find a spot where it's it's not such a a big problem. Yeah, yeah. 
How do you, so I'm, I'm guessing any, any kind of antenna and all that stuff would be outside of the house with, uh, with like a lightning arrestor on it or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, so I'm planning on having, um, I, I like, uh, the RTL SDR, um, software defined radio. Uh, it's like a little USB device. Um, they're pretty popular in the, in the hacker and yep. maker communities. Um, but they're super useful. Uh, yeah for all sorts of things, you know, debugging stuff and understanding like what's going on on the radio spectrum. But, um, I've, I've been uh, pretty pleased using an RTL SDR dongle and, and I'm planning on actually running. Um, I don't know if this is going to work yet. I haven't actually used the, um, USB three extension cable, but I was actually thinking about running that up a mast essentially, um, closer uh, to an antenna, just getting it completely away from, from the house and, um, you know, seeing, seeing how that might help uh, with some of the, some of the interference and then having, you know, having antennas like well away from the house, like they're not going to be inside, uh, the, the tiny house where, you know, that would, that would yeah. certainly, uh, bring a lot more, um, like RF coupling issues into, into play. Plan on having all that located, you know, at least 50 yards to a hundred yards away from the house, you know, if I, if I can, and, um, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't operate all that often, um, uh, anyways, it's, it's more, um, kind of a technical interest and in, like setting up, um, setting up radio links and, and, um, you know, low power, uh, digital modes is kind of the stuff that I'm, that I'm more into. Um, but, but still something right, to right. consider. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's a, an interesting conundrum that you'd have to plan for, you know, especially having some like, you know, choosing RF devices that don't interfere with that or that would get zapped by so much power being pulled around. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Phil, you mentioned Grafana and, um, influx DB. Yeah. This is something that's really intriguing to me. Um, when, and it has been something that I haven't allowed myself to, to research yet because I, um, I want to get the house built. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if I, if I get, <laughs> makes sense. if I get too, if I get too deep, uh, you know, I have a way of like, like this, um, led, LED lighting controller, you know, did I really need to, to, to design a circuit board and, um, have it fabricated? No, but I, I couldn't resist. I couldn't help <laughs> myself. So the, the influx DB and Grafana, I, I'm like trying to kick that can down the road, but it's a can that I'm very, very focused on, yes. if you will. Yeah. And I, I am, I am thinking about like all this data that I have about, uh, patterns like behavior patterns and things and you know, power usage, all this stuff. And uh, using that to, to actually do, you know, more complex stuff. I, I haven't mentioned yet, like my HVAC system, but we got a, a mini split, like an inverter mini split, pretty high efficiency. I'll have a energy recovery ventilator. So it'll be able to move stale air out of the structure. Yeah. And, um, you know, that I want to have all that linked in as well. And then also have like air quality uh, detection as well. So that those things could also be, you know, home assistant could be telling, you know, the energy recovery ventilator, okay, you know, we, we sense that uh, somebody's taking a shower or somebody's cooking. So, you know, uh, basically move, move fresh air in Mm. as fast as possible for a period of time. Yeah. Where can I go with influx DB and Grafana? I mean, how, like how deep does this rabbit hole kind of go? Oh. <laughs> so, uh, Grafana <laughs> and Influx is actually um, 
good for so influx db would have like your your long term you know data i think the default retention is like 6 months but you can have it for as long as you want uh, and then grafana just literally puts graphs around that data but if you want to get to sort of like the machine learning state where you know the the house you know can see what's happening and then take action based on that uh take a look at the jupiter i think it's called jupiter and they've got they're called jupiter notebooks and what you can do, uh, and maybe even powered by IBM Watson or something like that, where you yeah. can have, uh, you know, a whole bunch of data being pushed into this system and, you know, you teach it how, you know, you know, basically like signals, you know, if the, uh, if the oven is on and, you know, this window is open, you know, I need to take this action or if, you know, the sun's out and, uh, we're generating this much electricity, maybe shut this relay off or, or whatever. And you would essentially get the house to do some, like you teach the house how to proactively act on, you know, what's happening in your home. Now, of course, the problem with that is, can you use a Raspberry Pi sort of hardware for that? Probably not. And also, I'm a big proponent of, you know, splitting up things. You know, I've always said this, I don't want, you know, my lights turning off and on and off and on slow because I'm downloading something and it's taking up CPU. Yeah. So, do you want, you know, especially with machine learning, it's going to need a lot of uh, CPU power to to run locally. Is it worth it maybe having, you know, that in a, a separate, completely isolated, you know, maybe a secondary Nook or a, a Raspberry Pi just to itself away from home assistant so that, you know, it's not slowing down home assistant when it's processing all this data. But yes, to answer the question, you can go very deep. Yeah. 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 A, a lot of those kind of systems you might want to move off to, to Phil's point, right? Have separate stuff or, or you know, and, and I know internet's going to be a problem, but if it's possible to offload that kind of stuff to the cloud or something like that, then then great. Then do that. Maybe you store a little bit when you have connectivity, you punt it all back up. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, having not, um, ha- having not, really looked into this too in depth. Um, the, the machine learning, you know, the InfluxDB and Grafana, I guess those are, are more data management and graphing yeah. and things. Um, you know, I, I was I was kind of more into that, that Jupiter, what you're talking about with Jupiter and then the machine learning aspect. I mean, how much, uh, Phil, you had mentioned like teaching, you know, teaching the machine learning or, or teaching Home Assistant uh, to, you know, turn off basically creating automations based on um, sense sensor inputs and things. Yeah. Um, how with Home Assistant, um, how how smart is it in terms of um, being able to learn, like being able to set it up to actually learn patterns and then essentially like anticipate, you know, in the future? Is it is it something where every single like automation I'm like sitting down to the keyboard and you know, binging out um, code to say, you know, if sensor A is, is you know, closed and, you know, sensor B reads this value, then do X and then kind of creating like a whole command tree out? Or are there actually capabilities where um, you can kind of start to have to have the thing learning itself and then actually trying to anticipate your needs? I mean, that you know, that that sounds. Um, I, I'm sure that could really go off the rails. Uh, but is that is something like that even possible? So I guess I have to start off with I haven't looked into this personally. I I'm a bit of the mind of uh, I can't really trust uh, you know the machine to know exactly what I do all the time. I don't think 
you know, machine learning is is there yet. But I think that is the the whole idea of these, you know, Jupyter notebooks and, and IBM Watson is that it learns these patterns. And I think to some respect, you know, we even see, you know, a lot of this coming into like the uh, some of the big players, for example, the Amazon Echo and the Google Home. Amazon Echo has the ability for uh, the new guard feature, which can also use some of this functionality where it can know, you know, what sort of devices that you have on during the, um, you know, after sunset. And then if you're away and you've got guard mode enabled, it can sort of like mimic that you're home based on the actions that you would normally do. So I'm guessing like this is what, you know, where you would use, uh, you know, the IBM Watson and, and all these Jupyter notebooks, you would give it a, a pre-set, you know, sort of rules and, and, and what you want it to learn and, and let it go ahead and, and try and, and work out what it would do. Yes, you'll have to tinker with it. I don't know how involved it is. You might need to be a, a data scientist, you know. I'm, yeah. I haven't tried it myself. But on the opposite side, you know, going in and, you know, is this this state, is it this state, that's what basic, you know, that's the whole point of home assistant automations are, you know, you if you want something to happen, you have to actually, you know, create the automation to do that specifically. So I'm that's where I would assume that this all this machine learning stuff and, and Jupyter notebooks would come in that you don't necessarily have to write an automation for every single scenario. Yeah. Yeah. If you check out the, there, there's also, so uh, home assistant has a specific uh, data science uh, kind of page, right? So uh, it's data.home-assistant.io. Check it out. There's some there's some interesting stuff there, and and really it's just it's it's more around hey here's here's data and here's all the stuff that you know you want to consider and and that kind of thing right so and and it also kind of shows you how to use Jupyter Lab and those things yeah yeah so in this situation like if I have you know sensors everywhere. Um, I, I, if if it's not today, I mean, I can see a point in the future where we'll, we will have, um, you know, machine learning able to anticipate our needs. Um, so I, I think of like coming home. I mean, the, the typical routine that I might have, you know, uh, when I'm, you know, five miles from home after work, um, you know, cut, bring the, bring the temperature down to, you know, 70 degrees inside. And, um, maybe a bit cooler if it's hot outside, you know, when I'm pulling up to the house, you know, turn on, if it's, if it's after dark, you know, uh, turn on the, the exterior lights, unlock the door, you know, put on some music, um, change out the, the indoor air. If it's, uh, uh if it hasn't been changed out, you know, recently, so there, there's fresh air inside, you know, and on and on like these sorts of things. Um, you know, if that's, if that's my, my typical routine, some of the, some some of those things are like automations based on uh, like GPS data or whatever. But yeah. in terms of the routine, like when you get into the home, you could certainly uh, with so much computing power and so much data input, uh, it seems inevitable that, you know, you will have some sort of like AI kind of creating these automations for us. And um, I'll, I'll definitely check out that that data science page. I mean, do you. Do you, do you think that you really do need to be like a data scientist at this point to to do that? Or are those capabilities already kind of out there where, where Home Assistant is kind of writing automations for you based on your typical patterns? Personally, I don't think I don't think it's there yet. Right. I mean, there's there's stuff you can hard code in and things like that. So like, like for example, uh, with in terms of uh, you can use 
concepts like zones and stuff to say, hey, I'm within this zone. Uh, I want to define a radius of this much. And like, like you, you used the example of, hey, I'm five miles out from the house and turn the temperature down, right? Whatever, whatever that looks like. So that kind of stuff, stuff that's more static uh, you can do. But really, when you want to start doing more dynamic kind of behavioral things, then that's really where that's really where you want to start looking at something like uh, some, something that involves data science. Right. Uh, because now it's about there's and, and, and I am in no way even remotely qualified to, to talk about this. But but there, there's quite a bit of statistics. There's quite a bit of that kind of stuff that gets involved in terms of how do you model what's happening on, and that kind of stuff. So it, it can get complicated, I think. There are some pretty cool high level things that you can you can kind of learn and figure out. Um, and, and I think uh, and, and I haven't looked too deep into it, but I think Jupiter is one of those things that's a little easier to get started with. But then you can really start going down a, a rat hole of, of, you know, here's how I'm going to start to predict behavior and that kind of stuff so that especially when you get into predictive kind of things. That's I, I think that's really where you know, you're moving away from home assistant and, uh, and more into that kind of, uh, machine learning kind of behavior, behavioral analysis, right? Yeah. So with Jupyter notebooks, Phil, I, I haven't even ever heard of that. So I guess I'll, you know, ask general questions like, is that something where you actually have the ability to do some of that predictive behavior? And then that could actually be an input into home assistant rather than that running on Home Assistant? Is that kind of the way that it's set up? To be honest, I'm probably not qualified to answer that. I, I, I'm pretty sure that it is a separate system that would take in the data and then output an action. And so that action would be, you know, tell Home Assistant to do this. But I could be completely wrong on that front, though. Yeah, I've, you know, I've, I've been designing this, um, you know, this, this as a kit product um and i've, I've been I, I don't think that the technology is there yet uh, but but i i find myself frequently thinking like wouldn't it be cool once you've built and assembled this kit uh if there's there's wiring and sensors kind of pre-installed in a lot of these panels and you you can essentially like do i don't know a month of uh, basically you're controlling everything for a month and yeah um the, you know, you've got machine learning where it's actually detecting your patterns based on, you know, uh, all sorts of different things. And then, you know, more predictive um, behavior. And of course, like as seasons change, you know, uh, and, you know, it it would have to be learning as it goes. But it seems like um, after a period of time, you'd be able to have some pretty accurate, simple predictions about, you know, what what your needs would be. And I've I've like, (laughs) I've been thinking about how that how, how home assistant would really enable something like that. And I, and I did envision it being, you know, data being crunched outside of home assistant, but then home assistant bringing in inputs, you know, from that, f- from whatever that is, if it's Jupyter notebooks or whatever, and then, um, you know, essentially having that like writing, you know, writing some of those automations uh, or creating some of those automations for you. But I, I guess that is a little bit down the road and I'm, I'm not a data scientist. I'm, I'm actually not, much of a, a coder yeah um or a software guy i mean i can kind of i can stumble through and um yeah you know i have written um written stuff for microcontrollers and things but in terms of like a major project like that i would need a 
you know, a pretty intuitive like user interface, um, you know, to do something like that. But it is something that's really intriguing. Yeah, it, it's definitely one of those things that is, to your point, it's very cool. It's very advanced. It's kind of that kind of, but I, I don't think there's a ton of people out there, especially with the context of home automation that have really figured this out yet. I, I'm, I'm not to say there's nobody. I'm sure there are people. It's just, it's definitely not the masses, right? And And I think when, you know, to power that kind of stuff as well, you're, Again, a lot of people are running this kind of thing on like a Raspberry Pi, right? I can I, for that kind of stuff. I think you'd need something a lot more powerful than than something like a Raspberry Pi or even an Intel Nook. Maybe I don't think will be powerful enough. So depends on again depends on how much data you're feeding it and how much crunching it's doing and all that stuff. But for the most part, yeah, it's it is it is it is definitely something intriguing. But I think that's also pretty far out for especially for like a product like Home Assistant, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's our, like, it's our AI future, right? Totally. Like, um, uh, I mean, so many things like open up, you know, like, uh, you have a connected, um, uh, connected, uh, uh, bathroom scale, you know? Oh, well the AI decides that, you know, you need to lose a little bit of weight. So it locks the fridge door, you know, at, at hours <laughs> when you, you know, snack needlessly and stuff like this. Yeah, 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 exactly. Definitely a Black Mirror episode in there. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I think you have a lot of work cut out for you in your little tiny house. And I think uh, you've raised a few questions, not only for for us, but I think a lot of people are going to also have a lot of advice for you. Where can people uh, reach out to you? Uh, So my uh, my Instagram is at tiny house kits and um, uh, email tiny house kits at gmail.com and my website tiny house kits.com awesome well we'll leave links to that in the show notes maybe some photos yeah I'll, i'm going to check out your instagram now though tiny house sounds really cool yeah i haven't actually um posted too many um like progress photos um on instagram not not super active on social media but um but i i definitely will post some some photos in the show notes um, for you guys awesome well yeah thanks so much man for taking the time and yeah best of luck yeah thanks a lot thanks yeah i really enjoyed it um thanks for thanks for doing this podcast guys Uh, we enjoy it thanks a lot cheers take care if you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io that's h-a-s-s podcast.io The Home Assistant Podcast is hosted by Phil Hawthorne and myself, Rohan Karamandi. For links to topics that we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io.